Today in the garage, we have Brianna Vandebeek and Nathan Gorm. Brianna and Nathan are partners at Gorm Vandebeek Trial and Appeal Lawyers, a criminal defense firm with offices in Toronto, Ontario, and St. John, New Brunswick. Brianna was called to the bar in 2012 and worked for eight years as an appeal lawyer at Rusonic O'Connor, Robbins, Ross, Gorm, and Angelini. She has been counsel in many leading constitutional cases and high-profile criminal matters. Brianna has a particular interest in criminal appeals and has argued over 100 appeals at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. She has appeared at all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. Brianna is a member of the Pro Bono Inmate Appeal Program at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. She is also a Toronto Director for the Criminal Lawyers Association, the co-chair of the Gail Moot, and on the executive for Women in Canadian Criminal Defense. Nathan was called to the bar in 2004. His practice focuses on complex criminal trial and appeal litigation. He recently completed his Doctorate of Juridical Science at the University of Toronto, where he studied miscarriages of justice in the bail system. He was also recently appointed Queen's Counsel. He is an adjunct professor at the University of New Brunswick Faculty of Law, teaching courses related to criminal law and professional responsibility. Whether you're riding your Yamaha R1, ripping your Stratocaster, or prepping a cross-examination, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Brianna, Nathan, thank you very much for coming to the garage today and joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So the first thing I want to ask you guys about is how your practice uh, both involves practicing in Ontario and New Brunswick. Um, how, how, did, how did you get to that? Uh... So the idea of the practice uh, commenced to begin with when uh, I spent the summer at the cottage in New Brunswick and Bree was back in Ontario doing a very difficult habeas corpus application for one of our clients uh, who had a hopeless immigration detention hold, but we were fighting like crazy to get him out. So I spent the time at the cottage and uh, on the way back, I said, I, I, I really was not looking forward to getting back to the rat race. I needed some more time out in the country that summer. And so I decided that it would be nice to, spend a bit more time in New Brunswick and uh, not leave Toronto completely, but spend uh, more time in New Brunswick and ended up buying some property in New Brunswick. And then that led to a, a case here and there. And then in 2018, when Bree and I were talking about the possibility of starting our own firm, uh, I explained that we had, uh, we had some uh, cases already in New Brunswick. Uh, we could continue with the practice there and, and expand the practice and then continue with our Toronto practice as well. So Really liked the idea of it, I guess. And, and so when we started our firm, we, we put a little bit more emphasis uh, on growing both offices at once and, and things have, have uh, taken hold in, in both jurisdictions. And so now we're thinking about uh, maybe expanding to Halifax as well so we can exert a bit more of a presence in Atlantic Canada beyond just the New Brunswick area. How do you find the practicing in two jurisdictions? Well, it's exciting and trying at the same time. There, there are weeks where Bree and I will both fly back and forth from New Brunswick to Toronto for uh, cases in both places uh, in the run of one week. At times, I've flown uh, two or even three times uh, back and forth. And so it can be strenuous that way. But it, it's also interesting because in some ways, the practice in Atlantic Canada uh, allows us opportunities that we wouldn't necessarily get in Toronto because 
the the development of the law and the legal process in Atlantic Canada is um, in some ways out of step or a good bit behind what you might see in Toronto. And so we get opportunities to litigate issues that would be eyebrow raising uh, in ground zero, if you want to think of it that way in Toronto. And they can be a lot of, uh, they can be interesting and challenging uh, out in Atlantic Canada. Can you give us an example? Uh, so there's lots of examples. One example, uh, one of the first ones that comes to mind is there's a practice in some parts of New Brunswick where a person will be arrested on a Friday evening. They're brought to court on the Saturday and, uh, excuse me, on the Sunday. And then in order to get around the adjournment provisions in the criminal code, the authorities swap one information for the next so that they get two uh, automatic adjournments of a week's time and the person won't be, have any chance for a bail hearing until the following Thursday. So they, they essentially guaranteed six days in custody, no matter what, just by virtue of the arrest. And so that's, that's one issue that we've sort of um, picked at. I haven't got a case that, that, that squarely raises it yet, but that was one of the ones that's on our radar. Uh, we've had situations where, you know, in, in one uh, larger complex prosecution that we did, the trial judge uh, in the middle of a recusal application pulled our articling student into a private office and started grilling him on, uh, on what we were doing with our application and what evidence we were going to file and then suggested that if we pursued it, it would be uh, more difficult for us and it would, be, it would be hurtful to the client's case. And so that was more than eyebrow raising. And that, was, that, that, of, that of course, was far more stressed than we wanted to deal with. But that would be an example of how things can sometimes occur uh, differently out here than they do uh, in Ontario. And, and in some ways, it's a good thing. Like, there are very good aspects of it where there's, the bar is, in some ways, more collegial. Uh, things are less formal. There's not as much administrative uh, red tape to get through. And so those parts can be enjoyable. Uh, other parts present challenging challenges where the process really isn't uh, what you might expect in 2022 and other parts of the country. Brianna, any comment on that? Yeah, I, th I think there's pros and cons to, to both places. I obviously, I'm from Toronto, so my heart is there and I, I love practicing um, at Toronto and at the Court of Appeal especially. So, um, but it is, it's just different um, yeah, I think here there are things that are less formal and that that's good and it's bad sometimes. I'm in a Brunswick or Margo to start with. And so in some ways, it sounds like I'm being critical of my <laughs> of my my home country, but but I'm not really. There's all kinds of things that are that are enjoyable. But one of the things that I thought to myself at various points is that there were there was a generation of lawyers that came before us and, and we heard some of the war stories that they told about forging new ground or changing practices that weren't fair in the Toronto or the Southern Ontario area. And they had a, they had a privilege or a, a responsibility to stand in and fight those battles. And they, and they had the satisfaction of seeing things change. And lawyers of our vintage, we've sort of moved into an area of the practice of law that's somewhat refined by all of the battles that went on before we came to the town. And so the one of the, it's both, it's not just a criticism. It's a we see it as a as a as a privilege and also something that uh, we're happy to do in terms of having a firm of young lawyers in Atlantic Canada and helping to 
you know, professionally and conscientiously help move uh, the needle in the right direction in terms of procedural fairness and some of the practices. And so it's not really a criticism. We're happy to ha be expanding the offices and, and happy for the opportunity to, to um, be a part of change if it happens. That's a good way of looking at it, actually, because uh, oftentimes we, we sit here and you know, and we look at all these great lawyers that came before us and Jack Pankowski and James Lockyer and, you know, the Greenspans and, you know, G. Arthur Martin. And we say, oh, they, they made a change at a critical point in time, but we're so isolated and, and focused under a microscope of how we're practicing here. And through this podcast, when we have um, interviewed people from, you know, Western Canada, uh, from the North, and now also from the, the, the East Coast, it sounds like there is this opportunity to affect that same kind of change uh, at, at that same level that we know or we feel it's already been done generations before us. And it's uh, the young lawyers that I've had the opportunity to speak to have all indicated that, that they look, look forward to doing that and trying to make that uh, impact. So it's an opportunity for anybody who is looking to do that type of work, especially from Eastern Canada, if you can now, are you guys hiring or do you have a, how big's your office? Uh, so right now we have, we have three associate lawyers in the Atlantic Canada office, as well as a summer student who will be coming back on as an articling student. And then we have two articling students in the Toronto office. And we have, uh, you know, we're, we're always looking for good, hardworking, conscientious people. And so uh, it's, it's not always easy to, to find people that sort of have our philosophy in terms of the way we practice and the and our commitment to what we're doing. And so when good people come along, we're always willing to talk to them. Now, both of you started your careers uh, basically at the same office. Tell us about that. I'll start with, uh, well, I'll start with Nathan because he's started first, I guess. It was still Pinkovsky's, I guess, when you started there, right? Right. So I started at Pinkovsky's. I, uh, when I was in uh, first year law school, I had a, a series of criminal professors that, that I talked to or, or uh, directly taught me that sort of increased my interest in criminal law. And then I, I downloaded the articling database from Queens and looked at every criminal firm uh, and crown office that hired uh, hired articling students and so what I did was I went through the list and I called cold called all of them and it was like I can't remember how many but I, I do remember the afternoon of going through all these calls one after the other uh, and making my pitch that I didn't have much to offer but but I would I wanted to do it and if they could give me enough to just pay the bills and get experience I'd be happy to do it and so Donna Armstrong from the 1000 Finch office was the only crown that called me back and out of the out of all of the boroughs and she uh, politely apologized that they wouldn't have any first year jobs, but encouraged me to try in the second year or articling. And with Pinkovsky's, I left a message late in the day after I'd already made 40 or 50 other calls, uh, or at least it felt like that. And on the, I left a message on uh, Gary Grill's answering machine. And it said, uh, I was just going off the top of my head, but I said, basically, I'm a first year student. I know I don't have anything to offer. I'm willing to work for the scraps off the side of the table uh, if I can get experience and they can give me enough to pay the expenses. And so I hung up the phone. I said, what a stupid thing to say. I just, I, 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 I just 
I just blew that one. And so Gary called back and said, okay, you can, we'll see you for an interview uh, a couple of days from then. So I went in for the interview and I got there and uh, I sit down with Gary and the office was moving. And as I walked down the hallway, I could hear people shouting off in one side. There was a, there was like a screaming match going on between one prominent lawyer who I'll remain nameless right now and, and a member of the judiciary. And there was currently of the judiciary, uh, but there was F-bombs going back and forth between the two of them. And I go in and I sit down in Gary's office and he starts uh, talking to me about, uh, you know, why I want to be criminal and so on. And then this guy walks in in short cut off jean shorts and a hammer hanging out in one pocket. And he says, uh, why does Nathan not have a job yet? And, uh, and Gary says, can you stop? Can you get out? He's a first year student. None of them have jobs yet. And then, so the guy walked out and came back in and heckled me a bit more later on. But it turned out that was Reed Rasonic and he was listening in on, on what was happening. And so I finished the interview <laughs> and they said, they said, okay, you can start on, uh, on, on June 4th. So I go in, I end up going in and started with them and I managed to weasel my way into a, an articling student pay that summer by just doing work, by signing myself up for the set date lists. But I, I started in the, that's the way I started in the Binkowski firm in, in sort of the hustle and bustle and hard charging environment of Binkowski's. And then about five years after I uh, was called to the bar, we, we then split from some of the others and created Rasonic O'Connor, Robbins Ross, Gorham and Angelini. And about two years after that, uh, Brianna started with the firm. And around the time she started, I, I managed to um, pull her out of the appeal practice to help me with, with one of our challenging cases. Uh, it, the, I'm sure she'll tell us about a little bit later on, but where we, we ended up getting a 69 uh, Chevrolet Camaro as the retainer and, and driving back and forth the court in that. So uh, anyway, that's, that's how my time at Pinkowski started and how it transitioned into Rasonic O'Connor. So, so for all the students who listen to this podcast, just keep calling Reed Rasonic off the hook and see if he'll give, give you a job. That's right. That's right. I'll leave his kidding. number afterwards. Don't he do likes that. calls, especially after hours. Don't do yeah. that. Um, Brianna, pick up uh, from where go uh, Nathan left off. Um, yeah, so I had article at Alan Gold's office. And then after I finished there, um, I didn't really have a job, but I knew I wanted to do appeal work. And then it just so happened that um, one of my friends, who's now a crown, he was working at um, Rorga at the time. So he he said to me, you know, Mark Halfyard, the appeal lawyer at our office, he has way too much work. He really should hire someone. I'm going to go talk to him. And then he did. And I met with Mark and then I, I got the job. And after that, I just stayed with Mark for about eight years until we started the firm together. And, and you had an opportunity to tell us about this case that Nathan brought you on. and Yeah, so that was, um, it was an immigration case. So this was when I had first started and um, it was, it was, what, what, detention review, that stuff? Yeah. Bree was, Bree came on as an appeal lawyer with, <laughs> in the appeal section at Rasonic O'Connor. Uh, and so I didn't get that memo. And, and I had a case going on where a guy was, detained in the immigration division and it was very unfair i can get into it a little bit later if, if we need be but i went in and said breed what would you like to help me with this and it, it turned it turned into what we now still refer to as factum fridays right where we would churn out a factum it seemed like every friday but <laughs> anyway so Bree came on the case it was a detention review 
Yeah, so we had to write a factum every week because these detention reviews kept happening every month. And then there was all these other crazy applications, like we were bringing a habeas corpus, we were bringing different judicial reviews, and they all have these different timelines. And so we were constantly doing that. And we were, you know, there's a heated hearing at the detention review where I was just sitting there and then the detention, what's his name, the member turned off the recorder in the middle of the interview. So to just stop the record. And then Nathan basically starts losing it on the, at the member yelling and like slamming his fist in the, in the detention review. And I was sort of totally shocked because I had never experienced anything like this and yelling at him to turn on the recorder, turn on the recorder. But yeah, it was, it was a crazy case. And we had a, a really cool car that we drove to court or drove to the detention reviews every time. But then unfortunately, Nathan sold the car for money. <laughs> so it was a really sad case, actually. It was a guy whose family was from Canada, but his parents had him uh, while they were staying in the United Kingdom for a few years. So he was born in the United Kingdom, came to Canada when he was two, stayed in Canada his entire life, uh, but he was a permanent resident because of that. He applied for a citizenship, got it, but didn't attend the citizenship hearing. And then he was eventually uh, charged and convicted of dangerous driving, causing death because he sped up here Ontario Road and his um, cousin drove behind him, following him, trying to catch him and lost control. And the cousin spun into traffic and killed someone. Mm-hmm. And so he was he was convicted of this based on a, a theory that he was going in lock, his cousin was going in lockstep. And because it was a three year sentence that he got under the Harper government's changes to the immigration rules, Now, this guy was ruled inadmissible, and uh, even though he'd spent his entire life in Canada. And so he came to us when he was in the the throes of the immigration system and being detained uh, pending his deportation. And so it was a very sad and frustrating case in that way. And the immigration division was uh, raising ridiculous uh, arguments about jurisdiction as to why they couldn't consider relevant evidence that would, would otherwise be admissible. And then so I was a little frustrated by these uh, outrageous arguments. And when the member thought it was okay to to expunge my objections from the record by turning off the official recording of it, I, I found that rather upsetting. But the, the, the funny part of the whole story was that the, the client wanted to save some of his money in case he was deported and had to start a new life in the United Kingdom. And he had quite a car collection at the time. So he said, um, he said that you want to come down and and take a look at the cars. And if we could trade a uh, car for, for legal fees, we would do that. And so I, I went down and he had a 69 Camaro light blue. And then he also had a 69 Chevelle. And I felt bad for him because he was getting crushed so badly in this unfair proceeding that I said, I'll take this, I'll take the Camaro, which was worth about a half or a third as much as the Chevelle. As yeah. And so then Brie came onto the case. And the first time she came to the jail, we, we drove to the, to the case in the 69 Camaro. Um, but then Breeze still holds it against me to this day that eventually I ended up selling it because it was stuck in a garage in downtown Toronto and, and uh, I needed to actually turn it into something that would pay the overhead. And so uh, I sold it and then uh, claimed the taxes on it, of course. <laughs> Before we move on, uh, Nathan, I would like to ask you, um, I noticed that in your intro, you have uh, recently been appointed as Queen's Counsel, and I'm sure people are going to want to know how uh, that that occurred. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
so the Queen's Council is a designation that uh, certain law societies have for lawyers who have uh, made a particular contribution to the legal profession. And generally, you're eligible for it after 15 years at the bar in that province. And so I'm a member in Ontario, and I'm also a member in New Brunswick. But I joined the New Brunswick Bar in around 2016. And so the we've been sort of fortunate in, with our office out here that we've we, we have a, a few different people that, that uh, have come on with us and are real go-getters and, and understand the, the ethic and perspective of the firm. And so we've been able to really um, take on a lot of cases throughout New Brunswick and, and fight a lot of fights that weren't always being fought before we, before we started. And so the, what happened was the, and we've also had, Bree and I have also done a few high profile cases out here, including the Matthew Raymond case where the, the, the gentleman with the mental illness uh, shot and killed two people, including a police officer and was found uh, not criminally responsible. And then we did another one where a man was convicted of secondary murder in a child killing case and uh, with other counsel. And then it, when it was returned for a new trial by the court of appeal, uh, I took over the case and after a bunch of research on the the area of neuropathology uh, that uh, that the crown was putting against our client i figured out that the the doctors really didn't know what they were talking about and at the second trial uh, one pathologist or one pediatrician excuse me gave up in the middle of his evidence two others uh, decided they weren't going to offer opinion evidence and then the neuropathologist and the pathologist both accepted that that I was right and it could have happened the way my client said it, it, it did. So in the end, the Crown stayed the charge at the conclusion of their case. But after doing those two high profile cases I, and after all the great work by our, our younger lawyers in terms of fighting these important but, but, but smaller battles, um, then our firm got some recognition in terms of our contribution to the, to the criminal law in New Brunswick. And, they uh, waived the 15-year requirement based on the contribution that, that we had made in, in those respects, but then also the, the teaching uh, contribution. For a while there, I was teaching a, an entire um, workload, two courses in the fall, two in the, in the winter at UNB while practicing in both places, uh, while finishing my doctorate, and while uh, coaching the University of New Brunswick football team. And so it's a little bit stupid that, that I would try to take on that much, but but it was nice to be recognized when the dust settled on all of it for, for having made uh, these contributions to the profession out here. That's an incredible accomplishment. And it certainly speaks to the dedication that you clearly are putting forward both uh, in Ontario and in the province of New Brunswick, because as we know, you file fight both you. I mean, when I say you, I mean, you as a, as an office fight um, significantly difficult cases, um, baby cases, cases, uh, homicide cases, and they are the types of cases that take a lot, a toll on you. And on top of that, you know, with all your extracurricular contributions to the practice of law, it's important that um, such uh, accomplishments are recognized because it helps motivate other people in the bar to hopefully see those accomplishments and realize there's more to it than just 
one case, one trial, one client making money. There's a lot of things that we can do to make the system a better place. So congratulations to you and, and to the success of your office out there. Um, Thank you. I want, I want to ask about the recent homicide you did here in Toronto earlier. I think it was earlier in 2022. I think it was this year, if I remember correctly. Or was it late last year? I think the one you're thinking about was at the end of uh, of 2021. It finished in the last week in November 2021. It's all a blur to me, but yes, because I recall it uh, specifically simply because um, we've been trying to get you on this podcast, and we were we've been going back and forth um, for our <clears throat> listeners. Uh, Brianna and Nathan were supposed to be season two guests, but schedules just did not their schedule and my schedule just simply did not uh, coincide until now. But what was interesting, and I read about this in the in the media, but also through just you know word of mouth, was that this was a, a cutthroat defense that was run in a homicide case. Is that, I think is that right? That's right. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about cutthroat defenses because you successfully advocated a cutthroat defense. Your client was acquitted of murder. Yep. That's right. And 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 the co-accused was convicted. That's right, of second degree murder. Okay, so so first of all, give us a little bit of overview of how that defense materialized, or the facts, and generally how that came to be. Right. <laughs> so there was a there was a a young woman that was stabbed in a apartment building near Lawrence Bedina. And eyewitnesses inside the apartment said that two masked people came in. Uh, one was a woman and one was a man. They said the man came in and fired two shots uh, from a gun into the apartment. And then the woman, they said, ran out onto the balcony and stabbed the deceased in the chest. And so our client was the woman and the co-accused was the man in the situation. And the background story to it was that our client and the co-accused were in a relationship that had lasted um, the better part of a year. Our client went away to Mexico, and when she came back, she found out that that the co-accused had sent pictures of his genitalia to the eventual deceased, and that they had they had been in a, a sexual encounter, uh, the co-accused and the deceased. And so, the allegation was a was what the Crown referred to as a love triangle, and and they they argued that our client was a woman who was scorned, and, and the Crown actually. Uh, said in cross-examination of our client, she just said to her, have you ever heard the saying, a woman scorned? Uh, to which we objected and, and said, this is sort of outrageous, isn't it? it that the, a crown would be saying something like that. But so but anyway, that, that was the background. And the and so the, the co-accused in the case uh, wanted to take the position that our client was the stabber uh, on the strength of the two eyewitnesses who were in the apartment and said it was the woman that did the stabbing. And then there was also some there was also some text message material and, and Instagram material uh, where our client said the day before that she was going to stab the deceased and I was going to kill the deceased, excuse me. So the, the co-accused wanted to capitalize on those things and to to say that it was our client who did it. And so then our client gave a statement to the police uh, in the beginning saying that she didn't uh, go out to the balcony. She wasn't there when. When the stabbing happened, she had just walked into the into the apartment and then she saw a fight going on in the balcony, but she wasn't the one that did the stabbing. 
And so, of course, our, our our position was was already set when we took over the file because our client had given a statement and she said that was the truth. And so, our our job was to overcome the evidence of the of the two eyewitnesses and overcome the electronic evidence. And we had a we had one witness uh, who saw things from outside of the building, and he 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 was quite a distance away, but he said it looked like it was a man that was involved in the fight with the woman right before she screamed and fell. And so that's that's sort of the context of how we got into it. But it was it was quite a battle. These cases are always challenging when you have uh, the crown fighting on one side, uh, the defense lawyers fighting on the other side, and, and and so it was a very challenging situation with the the dynamics of the of the three different parties uh, in the proceeding: the crown, the other lawyers and uh, the judge what do you have to be aware of in a in a cutthroat defense and what do you you're you're always playing defense for your client but you're also playing significant offense in a cutthroat defense so what do you have to be aware of if you want to shed some light on that well i think one of the main things is understanding that the rules of evidence are going to be relaxed for the in the sense that the co-accused will be able to get away with introducing evidence or making arguments that the crown wouldn't be able to make. And so you, you have to be aware that your client may be, as soon as you start the, the cutthroat defense, that your client may be the subject of attacks that they wouldn't otherwise have been, uh, been faced with if it was just the crown. And in some, I would say one of the legal lessons out of these cases is it's, it's, the the lawyers in the cutthroat cases need to understand that the moves that the strategic decisions they make or the evidence they introduce or the questions they ask can have ramifications in the sense that there's a there's a risk that the questioning or the or the strategy will open up doors of attack against them that wouldn't otherwise have been open if it was the crown or even if it was the the co-accused doing it but for the lawyer's strategy so, for instance, the the the, the lawyer um, for the co-accused in the particular case I'm talking about wanted to mount an argument that our client had a mental disorder that made her more predisposed to violence. And our response was, "You she had a mental disorder, but it's because it's because their client had abused her and and assaulted her all kinds of different ways over an eight month period." And and then also, by the way. Uh, we said our doctor can diagnose uh, the co-accused as a psychopath on, on a paper record and introduce that to the jury as a character trait that would make the co-accused more likely to commit the offense. So that whole door was opened up because the co-accused strategy was to say our client had a mental disorder that made, made her disposed to violence. And once they opened that door, it, it opened the door for us to lead uh, all of this other evidence concerning his prior bad acts and the doctor's diagnosis that he was a psychopath. In the end, they decided that they closed that door and they didn't want that to actually happen. And so none of it came to pass, but it's a fairly vivid example of how the moves you make can, can lead to the other side firing back with evidence that otherwise wouldn't have been admissible and could be quite damaging. So that's, that's one of the dynamics I think you need to have in mind. There's also like the fact that the co-accused may have evidence that you don't even you know, know about, or you should, you know, your client has forgotten about or something like that. Like in this case, um, unknown to us was there was a jail letter where 
our client had written to the co-accused calling them Bonnie and Clyde and saying that they're they're still so in love together and and everything else after um, the murder had already happened. And so you had to like react quickly to things like that or obviously try to foresee that from happening if, if you could. But in this case, she didn't even remember writing that letter at the time. Yeah, so surprise evidence. There's no right of disclosure or things like that. It's a little bit of... Um... It's tricky, basically, when you're running a cutthroat defense because the playing field is not really leveled with respect to the co-accused, right? As it, as it tries to get leveled. Justice tries to level it with the crown because you know what they have and you're entitled to disclosure. But with the co-accused, you really don't know what, what could come. Yeah. Um, is this the first time you, either of you have advanced such a defense or is it something that like, what would you advise? Is it a, is this something we should avoid if we can, or is it only if when it's in your client's best interest, or is it an a good way to advocate when you have an opportunity to do that? I, I don't really know the answer to this question. I mean, most people say, oh, you don't want to run cutthroat defense because it often leads to both people getting convicted. But I hear a lot of stories where that's not necessarily the case. So do you have any comment on that, either of you? I think that's the you know the the predominant wisdom that's out there that don't do it because both sides will get convicted and there certainly is a, a a truth to that in the sense that once you start attacking each other you get to introduce evidence against each other that the crown wouldn't have been able to introduce and the crown gets to sit back and just enjoy uh, the show of of the two co-accused going at each other so there is a truth to it but i would say that you know, if you can avoid it, you avoid it. But but the reality for criminal lawyers is that when our clients tell us something has happened and 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 we have a good faith basis to believe that it did actually happen the way the client's saying, we don't have much of a choice. And so you have to be courageous and, and realize your role and, and your ethical responsibility and move forward, uh, advancing the case and and making decisions on how best to balance advancing your client's side of the events without unnecessarily uh, provoking all of these side battles with a co-accused that might lead to additional damaging evidence. And so I would say you cannot shy away from it. And uh, if, if that's what needs to be done in order to advance your client's case. And I have done it on, on other occasions. One notable one is I had one with uh, David Bayless and I, uh, David Bayless represented the co-accused and, and David is a formidable, uh, tenacious uh, lawyer. And we were in a situation in the judge alone trial where the cutthroat was inevitable. And it was one of the worst experiences of my career in terms of going head to head with David on a, on a day-to-day basis. We've, we've, we've managed to rekindle our friendship after that case is over, but it was, it was very trying. And in the end, uh, the judge acquitted both of our clients. Uh, she found that she couldn't believe anyone in the case. So she disbelieved the complainant disbelieve both of our clients and then and then acquitted but i i would say the the cases depend on the facts and if you have to do it you have to do it that's your role as an advocate under the rules of professional conduct to to pursue every defense that you think will help your client's case so can you comment on that's a good example with the one with david um can you comment on the impact that it has uh on you personally during the course of the trial does it 
make the whole experience a lot more difficult to contend with? Or is it something where when you walk out of the courtroom, you can just, you know, set aside your differences or, or is it something that manifests throughout the entire time of the trial? You want to either, either you want to, you guys are looking at just, so just for the benefit of the, of the audience listening, Nathan and Brianna are appearing by zoom and they look at each other and laugh because they know that there's an answer to these questions. And then, and then inevitably Nathan will, will uh, answer, but Brianna, do you have, do you have an answer to this? Um, I mean, for me, I, like, I, I found it hard. I find it hard to separate after like, obviously everyone's just doing their job, but it, it is, it is difficult when, you know, you're obviously invested in your own client and, you know, um, in this case, I think maybe I was really invested in our, in our client. And then it's hard when you have, you know, not just the crown prosecuting you, but you have other defense lawyers doing things to basically, you know, try to send your client to jail for the rest of your life. So I think it's, you know, you obviously have to be professional, but I do think it festers and causes more stress than, uh, I would say a, a regular trial where you just have the crown. It's, it's very difficult to have, I mean, you can have civil, cutthroat defenses where where lawyers are behaving professionally to one another um, be, because they're maintaining their composure. And for the most part, that's my experience. But these trials, even though they can, they can, this, you can maintain civility, there still is a lot of acrimony that festers under the surface because of the nature of the fight. And, and that's a natural, a natural thing. And it's, I mean, the case that I, I did against David Bayless, and I, I'm kind of joking about rekindling our friendship. We always stayed friends, uh, but but I'm sure we could have easily come to blows if we were in the same room uh, some of those evenings when we were fighting back and forth on things uh, because because da- David Bayless is the type of lawyer that will go to the wall uh, for, for his client, and, and I was doing the same thing. And so we were put in a position where we had to battle and we had to work 16 hours a day because we knew the other guy was doing it. And it's certainly a, a very draining and, and trying experience. Uh, it's always better. In that case, I didn't have uh, co-counsel with me. In the one the most recent one we're talking about, obviously, Bree and I were on it. And so it obviously helps a lot to have one uh, friendly face or ally in the room with you when you feel that you're being attacked on all sides. There was moments in time in the last one where I'd be standing at the podium and I, would have, I could hear objections under the breath from my left and from my right on both sides at the same time, so, sometimes for exactly the opposite reason. And, and, then, and then at the same time, uh, dealing with uh, a, a member of the judiciary who, who is challenging in the sense that he, he'll, he often asks you uh, questions that he's thinking and intervenes often in order to explore the, the issues that, that he feels are important. And, and I certainly enjoy that. Uh, with judges, but it can make it challenging when you're fighting uh, a war on either side. And then you also have a judge who is, is intervening often to ask you questions. And so it's, it's definitely nice to have a friendly face and an ally who you leave court with, and you can be in the, you can be in the situation together. Brianna, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Or, or, sorry, or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had the opportunity to observe before they retired? So I said, I get the privilege of working with Nathan all the time. And it is. He's laughing. 
Well, he's a Queen's counsel. So, and that's important. And, and honestly, like as a young lawyer, I watched that. He doesn't know this. I saw Nathan doing a murder trial, um, in front of justice Archibald with Richard Posner. (laughs) And I saw it was a difficult case and I happened to be there on other matters. And I, if my matters were down and I sat in and I watched a significant amount of it and I was, you know, impressed as a young lawyer because, you know, Nathan is not much more senior to me, but carries himself as a very, very experienced lawyer. And it was inevitable then that he was going to achieve this level of success. So go ahead and tell us why. I mean, I, I, I was always impressed with Nathan as a lawyer, even when I was younger lawyer at the firm and I got to work with, I actually, I did get to work with a lot of, you know, great lawyers, like, and see them in court, like read cross-examining a police officer or all the appeals I did with Mark. But I mean, Nathan has always impressed me in terms of his creativity and the, like the ideas he comes up with in terms of advancing the law and pushing things to new limits. And, you know, um, so just with all different legal issues, like with the step six stuff and when we worked on Crevier together, um, just those types of issues that I find interesting. And then I also, it's fun for me because I think Nathan and I have a little bit of different personalities. So sometimes I'm more quiet or reserved, whereas Nathan in court is really out there and aggressive. So that's, you know, fun for me to watch. Bree acts more quiet and reserved in court, but, but, nobody really gets to see her outside of court. She is as chippy as anyone you would see in the criminal bar. And she comes up with, with cutting edge ideas and, and, you know, sharp, incisive arguments that, you know, that I don't really see from anyone else that I've at least rubbed shoulders with. Uh, but I always t- say to her, I wish that you would, you would let the full Brie out in court rather than just saving it for me after court. But the, <laughs> yeah. Nathan, same question. What lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of, of their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had the opportunity to observe before they retired? Well, I think um, le- leaving aside Bree just for the moment, uh, I, I would have to mention Jack Winkowski, of course. Um, Jack was was the head and, and backbone of the firm when I started at Winkowski's. And I had the I had the privilege of driving Jack to court and then, and then watching him and then also buying his hamburger for him at lunch, which was one of the, which was one of the, one of the great privileges that young lawyers got, which is to have Jack order the order and then take a call and leave you to pay for the bill. Uh, and it was sort of a rite of passage, but uh, I got to see Jack in court and, but more than just seeing him in court, I got to be part of the firm that was where everyone was inspired by his, by his courage and his fearlessness. And a lot of lawyers talk about, you know, they're going to, they're going to be fearless and resolute. And it's like a, you know, we're aggressive or, or we'll fight for rights. And, and Jack really uh, didn't go around talking about doing that. Jack went around doing what he thought was right and, and doing it in the way that he thought was right, regardless of, uh, of uh, you know, the blowback that he might've got. And people have, potentially valid criticisms about the style that he used. But one thing I find very inspiring from Jack is that, is that the, the courage and the creativity and the commitment that he brought to raising issues. Uh, I mean, one of the last cases he did uh, at the firm before we split was he had, 
he had for years and years and years been been upset about the about the procedure on committal when the crown prefers an indictment and they get to seal their decision in a packet and you don't get to see what's in the packet unless you can get unless you can say what's in the packet and so he did this he did this skit the amazing mumford skit from the johnny carson show where they would slap the envelope on the guy's head he'd have to guess what's in it and he would do this routine showing how absurd it was and this is one of his things where it was one of the one of one of the sort, sort of bees in his bonnet that he was going around and had on his to-do list to, to sort of bring down. And one of the last cases he had, uh, he managed to have the packet unsealed and, and he learned that a very experienced crown at the Plumber Inquiry had written down as the reason for uh, preferring indictment. She had written down that she went into a judicial pretrial with the Plumber Inquiry judge while it was going on on an unrelated case. And after the defense lawyers left the room on the unrelated case, she claimed that the judge told her, you can shut things down. I'm not good. I'm going to commit them to stand trial. And so then she stopped calling evidence. And what happened was the judge discharged. And then the Crown felt apparently aggrieved by that and, and put in the packet approved of by the attorney general that she had this private conversation with the judge without the defense lawyers around. And she made decisions based on that. And so Jack managed to have that unsealed. And then the Crown's office at that time res responded by saying, well, well, we didn't really take that at face value what she said we we preferred the indictment for other reasons we, we discounted that claim that she had the in-camera meeting with the judge wow. and then jack said and jack said and this is the part that's really courageous in it and creative jack said you're in a conflict of interest you don't get to come into court based on the evidence of your own lawyers and say please advance that please accept this one account of the events that saves us when everything points to you haven't done something else you're in a conflict of interest you need outside counsel to come in who will decide if this is actually the right argument to make and then that can advance uh, the, the issue without having the conflict. And when he filed all those materials, the, the Crown's office gave up and stayed the charges. And so that's the type of thing where Jack, when he, when he felt something was right, he wasn't going to let, let go on it uh, uh, under any circumstances. So I, I'm privileged to have seen that, but also uh, began under a firm where there's a whole group of lawyers who their whole focus and approach to the practice of law is inspired and shaped by, by sort of Jack's example. Brianna van der Beek and Nathan Gorm, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the law garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms. And I believe that there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues before we leave. Is there anything that either of you would like to plug? Well, for all of your listeners in your new listeners, Marco, in New Brunswick, I'm going to plug the Salvis Clinic in Moncton, New Brunswick, which does fantastic work uh, looking out for homeless people and, and their health needs and uh, struggles with addiction and mental health. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Stahl, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J Mike podcast production. <laughs>